I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. This, this book is a, a book published just at the beginning of March, um, a book that came about with a very long history in some ways, a book uh, that first began, if you like, in 1983, I think it was, when the predecessor to this book was published, a book called um, Second Nature. Uh, this is a copy of it, um, edited by Richard Maybe uh, and Sue Clifford and Angela King. Sue Clifford and Angela King, two extraordinary women who founded an organization called Common Ground that many of you will have heard of, many of you might have known of, more than heard of, worked with even, in the early 1980s. An organization that has subsequently grown, developed and done all sorts of things. The organization that gave us, perhaps most famously of all, the idea of local distinctiveness in, in, our, in our landscapes, in our environments, the, an organization that made us think about what the value of, of place might be to people, uh, both at a, at a kind of rural parish level, but also in wider spaces, bigger cities, bigger spaces. I started putting this book together at the invitation of Jonathan Cape, who published the first book, Robin Robertson here, tonight, who published the first book in 1983, I think it was, um, and also of Common Ground as it exists today, uh, Adrian Cooper and Gracie Burnett, who send their apologies, they're stuck in Dorset, can't be here tonight, thinking that we might try to make a book that part was in conversation with that first book, an amazing collection of writings from people like John Berger, photographs by Faye Godwin, uh, essays by Raymond Williams, and others, uh, including one person I think who's in the audience tonight who I'll mention in it later on. And a book that answered some of those first essays in that book and, and developed an idea of what, how place writing and thinking about place and what the meaningfulness of place might be has changed in those 30, 40 years. Uh, so what I did was simply write to some of my favorite people and um, ask them to think about personal places might mean to them, what, the, what, what place at a, at a wider political community level might mean to write personally, but also to think more widely or to suggest thoughts towards a wider thinking of what place might mean, especially nowadays as a time when, as I've said in the introduction to this book, place is often diminished for most of us. Uh, you know, what is a, there's lots of places in the world that are, we spend a lot of our time in places that we don't really think of as places. The idea of the non-place figures for most of us for most of the time, whether that's a screen-based existence that a lot of us are living th through and, and via, or whether it's the non-places of, of most of the built environment that we move and live in and amongst motorways, car parks, airports, hospitals, offices, shopping centers. So this is a book that wants to talk about, uh, that invited people to, to write about how place operates and pertains nowadays, uh, but also how place and the ideas of place might have changed 
in the last 30 or 40 years. Place being one of the great things that the human species has done, has made in the world. We are a place-making species. That's something that we do. Uh, so that's the, that's, that was the driver, and I wrote my letters and got wonderful responses from almost everyone who I asked. You can guess some of the people who didn't write back, um, or who said no from the, some of their absences in the, in the, in the book. Um, anyway, that doesn't matter, because I, I got a lot of good people in there anyway. Um, so I, 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 I'm going to hand over to the real people tonight quickly. I just wanted to throw three, three thoughts in before we, we, we open it up to Marina and to Ken. Uh, and they're very domestic and local, because I think that's how it all goes for me. That's the important thing about this book, is that place writing fundamentally nowadays and the interest in place has to be about the small scale, the intimate, the ordinary. There are very few essays in this book about big places, about protected places, about what we might think of as special places. Almost all of the writing here, not by design, but by as it, as it arrived, happens to be about places that are small-scale, local, domestic, intimate. I came on the train from Bristol to London today and passed Didcot, which for a long time didn't exist for me as a place. It, any, any, any purchase it had on my mind was that I had the crush on a girl there when I was about 18 who was the daughter of the manager of Barclays Bank. <laughs> I didn't meet her in Didcot, but I, um, uh, I knew she came from Didcot, and so forever it was that and nothing else. It was inert apart from that for me. And then today, as I do every time I go on the train, I saw red kites, new arrivals above Didcot, circling, amazing, these big birds of prey, uh, now making a living in the back gardens of, of the town, the, the pretty ordinary town of Didcot, give or take a few bank manager's daughters. Um, and I thought about that, you know, that, so that's a question for me about, you know, place as a dynamic uh, operative uh, space. You know how how change is is part of uh, what we what we what we think of as as, as giving life to a space and a place. Uh, because of those kites, I now see Didcot in a different way, and it means something different to me. And they they're changing. They're, they're new arrivals, and they're and are making their own way there, uh, as as was my old love, um, and so forth. So I wanted that. That's the one thought. The second thought is that I've got, I was reading today also about the continuing extraordinary scenes and sequence of events in Sheffield with the tree felling of, in the streets of Sheffield, which you'll all know about. And I thought, what does that, what does that how does that challenge our sense of how we might be the architects of space and place that we, that we live in? You know, how, how much are we, we think we, we're, we're more sophisticated about the creation of viable community space. Uh, and actually, here's an example that's writ large every day in our news of, of people who, you know, the, the residents and the citizens of a space not having any say in, in how that place is going to live and survive. The third thought is a, is a more private thought in a way. And it, and it comes, I mean, I'm a, I'm a self-confessed writer of nature writing, which is a, is, a, is a bad thing in many ways, it seems to me. And I'm very pleased in this book to have a lot of writing from people who would never sign up to being nature writers. I think nature writing is a curiously solipsistic, narcissistic uh, <laughs> form of business. Uh, I'm very guilty of that myself, but um, I was very pleased that, that the whole thing about writing about place involves a writing about 
people and people in a, in a landscape, in an environment, which might be a mix of the man-made and the built-up, uh, but also the, the natural and the survival of those two twins seems to me very important. I just wanted to say th thank you to one person who wrote a book, a kind of anti-nature writing book before such a thing as nature writing existed, Fraser Harrison, who's here. He wrote this extraordinary book in the early 1980s called Strange Land about how nature writing was meaningless and how place writing <laughs> was meaningless because we were living in a, in a broken, disconnected, deracinated world. Uh, an extraordinary book, um, amazingly prescient and long before its time, before even Second Nature came out. And I, I read that book in the 1980s, uh, and, it, and it changed the way I thought about the possibility of living as a modern, contemporary person in a, in a landscape that I thought superficially beautiful, like the countryside, and thought superficially meaningful to me, like there was still a residual community in it that I could feel part of. So thank you to Fraser, who's here, uh, who was also on the board of Common Ground in the old days. But also, uh, let's hold on to that thought as, 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 as the sort of challenges to the possibility of having personal place-making experiences. Marina. Well, thank you very much, Tim, and also for asking me. I was very, very pleased to be invited to take part in this book um, alongside people like Ken, with whom I've actually worked on the ideas of place in the past. Um, so. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Didcot, because actually I have a, I have a relationship with Didcot, not through love, but um, one of the th characteristics of common ground that was very valuable and still is very valuable is that they didn't derogate the man-made banal. They were, when they had lo local distinctiveness, they realized that something in a village might be very important to the locals that actually had no particular aesthetic merit. I mean, a, 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 be a bench in a particular place or by a cattle pond, an old cattle pond or something, would be kind of, of value, should not be torn away. So they, they recognized the industrial effects or the effects of commerce or industry as being part of this reshaping of landscape that is to do with human habitation and use. And one of the very interesting things about your book, I'll come back to Didcot in a minute, is that, the, is that the order of essays is alphabetical. And this has led to a remarkable piece of serendipity, which is that the two political essays in the book um, are at the beginning and the end. They bookended. Barbara Bender, on a beautiful tract of Somerset, I think it is. Devon. Devon, yeah. sorry, Devon, Branscombe. Um, in which she lambasts the National Trust and other conservancy agencies for their insensitivity. And Ken, who's can Ken can talk about his own, but his own is taking on from his usual and very uh, salutary and marvelously inspiring work that always has a political edge. So Common Ground actually also articulated this because I was asked by the BBC to make, uh, to choose my favorite architectural building and slightly worried by things like, you know, the nature writing, if you like, I didn't want to choose Salisbury Cathedral, or so I chose Didcot Power Station, <laughs> and and this was very controversial. Before it was demolished. Before it was demolished. Yes, this is years ago, and I was terrified that Angela and Sue wouldn't speak to me. They were my neighbours in the two doors up in Kentish Town, but far from it. 
they were very pleased. They said, no, you've talked about something that, you know, this is what we do to landscape. And I was very keen to say that, you know, we depend on, in those days, that's the way electricity was generated. And, um, you know, that we turn off the telly to go and make a cup of, no, when the ads come on, you go to the kitchen to turn on the kettle and difficult power station clouds rise more <laughs> sumptuous and sublime than ever. And, um, and so, and they said, no, you've, sh you know, this was good. You show the relationship between the way we live and what the landscape looks like and what it does. And of course, the t power station itself was actually built by an architect whose name I now forget, but who'd been involved in the Catholic cathedral in Liverpool. So it was actually a sublime, brutalist building in the absolute ECT style of brutalism at that time. So that's what I loved about Common Ground, is that they understood the human in the landscape. And one of the things that um, Tim has done in this book is he's given Richard Long a kind of keystone position in the middle with a poem. And it is a poem, I suppose. Yeah. Well, text work, he prefers to call it. Text work, sorry, text work. <laughs> and, and one of his photographs, right? Yeah. So, and, and that, I think, is very interesting because a lot, a lot of this writing work is very close in spirit to making art. The artists have been registering and inscribing into the landscape. That's what Common Ground commissioned them to do. I remember Peter Matt, uh, Randall Page very, very early on. I think this was the first commission of Common Ground that I ever actually saw, they, there was a problem that a coastal, coastal path was falling into the sea in Devon, actually. And C C Common Ground had the idea that if they created a more interesting path inland, this would prevent this, this destruction of the earth. So they commissioned Peter to make hidden wayside shrines. So they were hidden along this path, but people were told they might be there. And should look for them. And they were very discreet fountains. Well, a lot of this, the essays in this book, are not describing the landscape as it actually is. They are describing interventions in the landscape, how, how inscription happens through imagination on a landscape. And I think one of the ways that I, I responded um, was through my Catholic background, which I've abandoned in every spiritual way but retain in narrative forms. <laughs> and, then, and, and that is that I also love Ovid, and Ovid inscribed the whole of the landscape of Italy with an incredible array of stories. So the, the idea of the storied landscape is something that really appeals to me. And one of the things that the Reformation did in its iconoclasm was actually try to scrub clean uh, the memory of these stories because they were superstitious, because they were miracle stories, because they were spurious. Um, scrub, the, scrub the landscape clean of these stories. But here and there they survive in an interesting way. Or they can be revived. Or they can be, as it were, written in again. So I suppose I was trying to do that about St. Frideswide, a very ancient saint um, who has a holy place in, in, uh, in Oxford in the meadows. Um, and that interests me because it's, it's a social and anthropological act rather than a historical act just registering what was there. You kind of enter and try to re-inscribe it. And I think many of the essays in this book, in this wonderful collection of essays, some of them are prose poems, and they actually try and do that. Do you think it's important, though, that for places to have been, for you to have known about it over a long period of time? Does that make a place for you? Well, attention is, attention, quality of attention, that often needs repetition. And I think that 
also aspect of the essays that's very sort of enriching for the reader is how time is chronicled. So the, the returning attention, that's Thoreau is in a sense the leader there. I mean, the idea that everything changes from minute, almost minute to minute if you pay attention to nature or pay attention to your surroundings. Um, so that there's but you, familiarity. I, I'm not trying to tell you, tell, give your story away, Marina, but um, I mean, her, her, her essay is a wonderful piece that travels from your childhood to the present day. Yes, because I rediscovered that part of Oxford. Well, I, um, I wrote my final, the final essay in the book, which is about the public park, and there are two reasons for this. One is that I'm kind of a social historian. I'm very interested in how history produces a new kind of landscape or architectural form that works, and the public park has been a very robust, strong institution in this country for at least 140 years. So I started by quoting the architectural historian Christopher Alexander who said that without common land no social system can survive and the park is a very crucial piece of common land in the city and it has its two kind of origins one is in you know, literally the commons the, the long history of the commons which goes back hundreds and hundreds of years which was always fought over and struggled and Edward Thompson once said that we wouldn't have any parks in London were it not for this historic presence in the landscape of the commons. And the other, uh, the other thing is really the Victorian civic gospel, which saw that in the crush of the city, they had to begin to create spaces where some of the enormous class differences and antagonisms could, it could be reconciled, or there would be the creation of places where people could be into rubbed shoulders and in some way learn from each other. Uh, and when I was uh, two years ago asked to give evidence to the select committee on the future of parks in this country, the first thing I noticed was that in the preamble to the, the government document, it said, what alternatives do we have to public ownership? Uh, we could, for example, think of privatization, mm -hmm. outsourcing, or community management. Mm. And the idea that you open your preamble is what to do with this enormously robust, resilient public institution without any kind of evidence that it's going wrong was, to me, terrible. Mm. Now, I happen to be also interested in parks because for the last 49 years, count them all, I've lived next to Clissold Park in Hackney. So I've seen it uh, all that time and I'm very much aware of how important a place this is to the people who use it. And um, amazingly, it's used by some, it, uh, we have electronic gate counters now uh, at all gates, and we know that three and a half million people come in the gates every day, well, every year, sorry. And, uh, uh, and even when they locked the, one of the gates because it was, uh, because it was broken, uh, there were people still being counted at night on the, because they, to walk their dogs, they climb over and then. But the fact is that, you know, this, this was, is a very popular institution. Now in the late 1990s, when it was clear that there was going to be a change of government, 1997, and I was working with the think tank Demos, um, working with Jeff Mulgan, we were kind of, were thinking what, 
what are the big projects that could a new Labour government could kind of organise around to show that it, it symbolised that it was back in the business of actually creating a common language around identity and citizenship. And, and we looked around and we clearly saw that the park had re really fallen off the political agenda. It had just disappeared. I mean, nobody talked about parks. No civil servants talked about parks. No politicians talked about parks. And we got together a consortium of local authorities and we did the first national study of park use uh, in this country. And it was tremendously fascinating because it, it did actually reveal just how little we knew and, 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 and there was no reason whatsoever for this, um, this, the way it had disappeared from the public domain. So, for example, I, one of my jobs was to go around to do the initial interviews with the park managers in 12 cities in, in Britain and talk to them. And the first thing I asked was, how many people use your parks? And they didn't know. And then when I asked them to guess, so for example, for example Victoria Park in Cardiff, I remember, I said, well, roughly how many? Well, probably, it could be up to a quarter of a million a year, you know, something like that. And after a year's survey, we found it was three quarters of a million a year. Now, in what other public service would mm. someone underestimate the, the success of their service by 300%? <laughs> and it was clear that nobody had really begun to take this, mm. this very rich kind of space very seriously. And in fact, we, this was common across all the parts in all the cities, a complete underestimation of how many people used it. The second thing was that the discourse then in parks management was in grass cutting and maintenance, good quality maintenance of the, the, horticulture, of the horticulture and the arboriculture, the tree stock and so on. But it was never about understanding it as a social space. Not only did they not know how many people used it, but they didn't know who used it, at what times of the day, what days of the week and so on. And when we began to do these gate surveys, on day by day, uh, and ascribing people by you know um, age, uh, gender, uh, estimated ethnicity on their own or, or with other people, we began to see extraordinary patterns. Um, for example, um, Albert Park in Middlesbrough, all of the Asian community just came in one day, and they always came just at the weekends when they were self-managing their own sense of security. It was also true of Marion Park uh, in, in, near Woolwich uh, for the Afro-Caribbean population. Uh, we found that dog walks came in obviously very early and they were there very late. We found that very few women came on their own and if they did, they always had to have some kind of um, either pushing a pram or with a dog. They had to, this was 20 years ago, they had, they had to some, have some kind of a, something to accompany them, to give them legitimacy in the space. So this kind of richness of how people use the parts was, you know, really quite fascinating. And it did seem to us to require a different kind of management, because when we talked to people about how much the park was important to them, it was very, 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 very strong. Then we kind of think, well, we thought, well, is it always this kind of public space? And we did lots of focus groups with young people using parks, and the majority of them said, well, they used it as a private space because the home was either too noisy, uh, there was television was on the front room, a either very aggravating younger or older brother or sister was upstairs 
playing the, the sort of music they didn't like. They came to the park to be quiet and, and, and to gain some sense of kind of serenity. So even now, notions of public and private get very mixed. The wonderful artist, Ian Hamilton Finlay, once said of gardens, but I think it's also true of parks, that the chief content of a garden is the weather. You've already talked about you know, how things change minute by minute. And therefore, again, unlike the indoor leisure centre or the indoor <coughs> space, the park makes available an enormous range of kind of moods and emotions to people. And that's for lots of people for whom this is their only contact, as it were, with nature. This gives it that kind of very special uh, meaning to them. Uh, I'll give a short quote from, this was what um, the American journalist Michael Goldfarb, in a, a piece he wrote for the New York Times about eight years ago, said about Clissold Park because it happened uh, to come and be living near it for a while. In a world splitting at the seams, Clissold Park is like a dream. Some of the most intractable conflicts in the world seem to have been resolved, or at least temporarily ignored. Kurds and Turks, Jews and Muslims, working class and middle class people, this is Britain, all coexist, enjoying the lawns, the deer park, the ponds, the rose garden and the wading pool. So it is this space where there are many different uh, groups of people using and some have conflicting aims, but it, what is fascinating about it, of course, is that these are mostly resolved by degrees of self-management of people learning how to live with each other. So if on a hot uh, summer's Saturday in Clissold Park in the summer there are, will be 15,000 people through the <laughs> gates, there are no police on duty. Now you imagine 15,000 people in every other space in London, the, the security guards would be all over the place with their walkie-talkies and their you know, and so on and so forth. So there is something, I call it, it's the Republic of the Park. There is something special about this space in the consciousness and I think in the urban fabric. Can, can, can I, just one more thing? Yeah, it, and it is the final thing because it's about death. Um, about <laughs> seven years ago, I, I met up with the uh, anthropologist Leonie Keller, who's here tonight, who's done a lot of work on how people think of where their loved ones have gone after they've died, whether it's at the burial site or it's what they do with the remains, the ash project. And we worked together uh, because we'd been told by a number of park managers that they could no longer cope with the surreptitious use now of the park for the burial of ashes or memorial plaques or the planting of trees at night in the wrong space at the wrong time of year. And Leonie said, we wrote this long essay of bringing the dead back home. And there is, again, something has happened in the culture. The abolition of all the cemeteries to the periphery, the rise of cremation, and so on. And people <coughs> want to bring these very strong, prof profound feelings of locality and anchoring that locality with this person who's disappeared or gone back to the park. So, we have this then, this marvellous space that I think is tremendously important to people and we must protect them. So, so my question then to you, to, to you Marina as well, is, is why, that's marvellous, but why is it that we find it so difficult to create such a space 
today? Why is public, the, the making of public place, space, so problematic for us in, in, the, in our new builds and in, in places like that? And why is it that, for example, you know, what, 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 what does what you've got to say now have to say about the situation in Sheffield where the people who might be thought of as the, the people to whom those trees at the bottom of their driveways and fronts of their houses means the most thing have so little to say about the future of those street spaces? Well, I think the, the Sheffield is an incomprehensible sort of blasphemy. And one can't, I, mean, I know someone who lives in Sheffield, and she gave me very little illumination of this. So, I mean, it seems incredible that, that they should undertake such an expensive maneuver when all they need to do is actually widen the pavements, which would, lo which would lose a bit of the traffic. So if they widened the pavement, they were complaining that wheelchairs and prams yeah. couldn't get by. So they just widened the pavements, put, you know, Absolutely incredible. But I, nevertheless, I suppose I'm a bit, I, though I'm very depressed these days, I'm also a bit of an optimist. I mean, there is a new, very, very wonderful new park in New York, which is the High Line. And that's being copied now in the idea of it. Well, the you know, Green Bridge. No, no, not the Green Bridge. No. <laughs> no, no, there's going to be one on a railway track yeah, in, no, in, 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 in sure. London somewhere. I mean, it's an old railway track. It's the same idea. Mm -hmm. It's not the Green Bridge, no. Mm. I mean, though, I, I admire Heatherwick a lot. I'm sorry he got involved in that. So I think that the, the ecological movement, though very frustrated, of course, deeply frustrated by our leaders, nevertheless, it is vocal and it is occasionally effective. And there's definitely, you know, the, the symptoms that you were describing, the people are writing about place, thinking about place, is definitely a relation, has a relationship to this. I mean, the, we are all trying to, to work on, you know, what the communality, the collectivity, the, and, you know, what you were saying is related to ownership. Mm. These, this, this is because it's a commons. It's mm. not owned by anybody who can exploit it. And that is being eroded. But nevertheless, we can, if we're vocal, we can try and hold on to that. I think that one of the, what you described as the public park says something very important about what's happening now, because you described how Kurds would use it one day, or the Afro-Caribbean community another for another. And, and there are so many people who don't have, you know, are dislocated, who have no long memories. Their childhood memory has got, has, a place has gone, and probably will never be recovered. There will never be a return, because if they go back to Syria, it will be, unless it's rebuilt, like Germany was rebuilt after the war in identical replicas, it won't be there. So the ownership of a place through inhabiting it with play and pleasure, it becomes increasingly important. And it's related, I think, to this idea I tried to mention before, which is that some of the ways we inhabit places are borrowed, some of the effective ways we inhabit places and experience places together are borrowed from old ritual mm. movements and ritual practices. Mm. So, I mean, even, I, you know, there are some cities where the trees are given little knitted, <laughs> have people seen that? Yeah. They're given little knitted jackets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't approve. Well, there's, a, <laughs> there's a man in the audience who wrote a wonderful book about the trees of Exeter. Uh, uh, naming every uh, you know oh, significant right. trees of Exeter. I mean, the, the, there is a that's a yes. common ground project. Yes. I mean, things these things yes. are important, and yes. um, but it still seems that this the initiative 
comes from at an individual or a community level, but the, the state or the or the council or the, the the city government doesn't quite know what to do with it. Okay. Well, I think partly it's because it's the predominance of a visual aesthetic around um, parks and green spaces that if it looks good on paper and it looks good on the computer aided design, it's going to work. Rather, we should see it. A space as what, um, as another Demos report I remember, nothing I was involved with, but it said the key question for public space is what kinds of experiences does this yes. allow? Mm. Not what does it look like? And if I think of the very successful spaces of recent times, there's the uh, Dawson Curve Garden, which is disused railway land. Yes. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely beloved. I mean, enormously popular. And uh, opened in the last three months. The, um, the Walthamstow wetlands, the former um, the turbine house in, in a reservoir area that mm. uh, disclosed the public for the last 40, 50 years. Now they have something kind of rough about them. Uh, they haven't been over-designed. They've been allowed to kind of grow. Mm. And they're not, you know, they are places that people feel they can kind of be at, you know, they're, they're not neat and clean, tidy, and all the paths have been laid out exactly. I mean, Olympic Park is not a park. It is not a park. It's an exhibition ground. It's yeah. fine. It works as an exhibition ground. It's fine. But it's not a park. It doesn't have that kind of um, growth, or that sort of vernacular <laughs> culture attached to it. I mean, this vernacular culture, if we could make it possible for people to sp spontaneously to have access to that. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of artists are interested in in, 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 in encouraging that. I think something of some Jeremy Della's project yeah, yeah, yeah. where he's sort of involved in how people you know, make things, folkloric things. Folklore is such a discredited word I hesitate to use it, but he called it, um, he called it a museum of folklore, didn't he? And so he, he was va valuing that, not saying we have to be Henry Moore or Barbara Hepworth to put something in a public space. We can be, yeah. we can be a child making a scarecrow. And, and actually, that's very common ground. I mean, yeah, that brings me on to what I wanted. I mean, we, we'll, we, I'd like to open it up to all sorts of people in the in a minute, and including some of the other contributors to this book who are here: Peter Davidson, Alexandra Harris, uh, Richard Holmes. They're not obliged to speak, but they might speak. Paul Farley, if he's crept in, I don't know whether he has. Um, probably not. Um, <laughs> despite what we've been saying, most of the writing in this book is very personal. It is. It isn't about. The performed public space or, or, or the challenges to that space uh, at the risk of putting you on both on the spot I'd like you both to talk a little bit about the, the, the personal place making and, and relationships with place uh, as a way of maybe intimating some of the other pieces in this book which uh, which are often uh, again I yes. slightly railed against it in my introduction despite having commissioned this book but discovered that quite a lot of people were writing about their childhoods of course you know where does where does where does place first become substantially operative on us you know it's the it's the it's when we're that much closer to it because we're only two foot six tall um, <laughs> and so forth um, so uh, Marina mm. you, you you write beautifully about these, this double experience of, of, of being in this place that's not a home landscape to you, uh, Oxford, Water Meadows, at Binsey, but which has had a, a, a personal effect on you. I think that the retrieval of memory has become more intense for us because we have 
access to materials about it in ways that people didn't have before. But at the same time, when you look at a, you know, a very week-by-week a, a week map almost, ordnance surveys that are very up-to-date, or you look at photographs, you know something's missing. And of course, it's feeling that's missing. So what this, the attempts, I think, that I made was to get back and actually to honor, in my case, certain feelings that I'd had um, that are now lost to me. I mean, they were for people. Uh, the sort of the chief figure in my story is this priest, uh, Peter Levy, who was an incredibly glamorous figure in my, in my youth. Everybody was in love with him. And, um, and, and he was very magnetic. And he took me under his wing and taught me lots of things. Showed me Samuel Palmer as a painter, talked to me about Gerald Manley Hopkins. So I sort of owed him something. And he lost his glamour when he, you know, kind of he became a don and got married. And somehow that wasn't so glamorous as being a <laughs> Jesuit priest. <laughs> and, and, um, and I was sort of, I tried to get back to that feeling, which was a, which was a feeling of youth when you are very, I mean, I, it's something I regret that I don't now get so enthralled by people. I mean, I'm sort of hardened old thing, and I don't, you know, fall for people in the same overwhelming way that I did when I was young. But and it was associated with place because, an interesting, you mentioned tree felling, or we talked about tree felling in Sheffield. This was about tree felling, which Jeremy Hopkins had written about, when the poplar, the aspen, <coughs> my aspen's deer, were cut down on the lane to Binsey um, in 1876 or something. But, yes. So he wrote a poem mourning that loss of those trees. Before we were, got here, Tim was telling me about uh, Common Ground now working with the Architectural Association. They have a wood in Dorset. I can't remember what it's called. I, I went there once. And uh, the taxi driver had taken us all from the station. It's a very beautiful wood. Said, oh, he, you know, he, there was no place like in the world. And he asked me, what did I think of it? And I said, well, actually, please get me out of it because I don't feel in any way comfortable in woodland. Uh, I really don't. I feel threatened and lost. Mm. And uh, so uh, coming from Southend uh, and Canvey Island are the two places that I grew up in. Uh, I have to see the sea mm. as a reminder that the world is still coming and going and there's flow and there's an escape route actually. Uh, there's a way out. I think by I think Byron said something, you know, that, you know, freedom begins at the coast, you know, so you've got that opportunity to get out of it. So for me, it is really, it's the, it's the islanded parts of Essex, it's Canvey, it's Mersey Island, it's Horsey Island, the Walton backwaters, it's where there's flow and water, yeah. Can, can place become so significant to us in our adult lives? Can we ever replicate the intensity of those primal experiences, the first substrate that we, we relate to. Or, I mean, presumably, if, if, you're, if you're, as Marina was saying, you've left, you've had to leave your, your primal spaces behind, hmm. there's a challenge, but maybe it's possible. Maybe, maybe we are still place-making as adults, or can be. Well, I've kind of, I, 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 I've walked the coast of Essex several times. Uh, and it's very long and I mean I, it is movement that kind of inspires me in a way set well it's the movement of the, the light and the sea and myself feeling I'm on the move uh, rather than being located very uh, very strongly in one place 
I mean, the people, you know, the, the essays in the book tell stories about these, you know, the one about tipping buckets. It's hmm. Paul Farley. Paul Farley, yeah. Yes. This is a story about owning a place, living in a place that is very familiar, but through the father. There's a father figure there. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, in my case, you see, I can't write about that because I was, it, I was abroad in my childhood. So I, don't, I can't go back to Cairo where I was, you know, or Brussels where I was until I was 12. So I think this is why, for me, the stories about connections to people, which happen to be situated in places, are how it resonates most. Because, I mean, I love that story about the Liverpool uh, sculpture and it's how it rusted sometimes and wasn't rusted other times and this evocation over time. But also the relationship he had with his father seemed to me to be important. It's, it's become for me a key perhaps to how the refugees and the different dislocated people in our world can be made to belong. is not because mm. they, it's because they can carry their stories which don't have to be their own personal stories, but can be just the stories of their culture, or memories that are more distanced from their own immediate circumstances, and bring them and be allowed to speak them, be allowed to inhabit them, and perhaps also be allowed to inscribe them, or not allowed, actually simply encouraged to inscribe them in our landscape, to start changing the story that our landscape tells. I mean, the analogous idea is the idea of the portable gods, the portable shrines mm. that the Lares that the Romans had. These were miniature, but they sort of told a story of how you were connected to the universe. Uh, which John Burnside writes about the, the remarkable um, wayside shrines in, on Indian reservations yeah. in North America. Uh, <coughs> these extraordinary moving documents of, of a people who were who were effectively immobilized by, by politics yes. of, the, of the last 150 years. Uh, uh, thank you both. Um, <laughs> I hope other people are going to have some questions. I'd love to hear from anyone, but uh, I also, as I said before, we've got these other contributors who I don't want, who I've yes. got here under semi-false pretenses who, who might have things to say, and I'm going to maybe ask a couple of questions of them if that's okay, but um, let's have some questions. I was inspired by what you were saying about public parks because even though I've lived in London for on and off with trips abroad and other reasons not to be here for about 30 years I've never really felt a Londoner because I grew up in the Thames Valley and countryside etc and listening to you I was just thinking I live in South London and I have the privilege of having different parks so it's a combination of the Horniman Museum which is a garden and a space which takes on a life of its own because of the museum. Crystal Palace, which is next to a big sports centre. It has the dinosaur lakes in the south, but it's a splendid slope down a hill that has a certain grandeur. Dulwich Park, which uh, is the sort of flat, classic Victorian with the lake and also a very, uh, you know, a hub of a cafe. Uh, Peckham Rye and also a cemetery. I think it's, is it Camberwell Cemetery? And just as you were speaking, I was thinking all those places, it's not just the public park which unites no. the immediate community. It's the fact that you can go into different parks for different reasons. I can wake up on a sunny morning and think, today I'll go to Peckham Wright because it answers a certain need in what I want to relate to. And if I think of how I relate and feel like a Londoner, it is precisely in these spaces because you can mingle without committing. You can observe, you can watch 
And this management of space, even when it's crowded, seems to me a really, really interesting dynamic of modern life. Yeah. That while public libraries have been under threat, are, are public parks really under threat? Because I think it's where everyone decompresses uh, in good weather and bad. Yeah. Did, uh, did everybody hear that question? It was a wonderful description of the various fantastic opportunities that London offers for people to have a different park for every mood, effectively. Uh, you know, you can wake up in the morning and decide to, that today is a Dulwich Park day rather than a Finsbury Park day. Uh, and uh, and that, that in itself as an opportunity that's replaced uh, some of the other social provisions such as libraries and so forth. Uh, so uh, general reflections back to the public parks, Ken, perhaps. Well, yes, yeah, so this raises uh, a very big issue because because they are all different, they require different management regimes. And, they, and what happened in the 80s was CCT, compulsory competitive tendering, which meant that local authorities had to put out the management and maintenance of their parks to contract. And a number of those contracts were won by private companies who no longer employed staff in situ who knew the spirit of the place, the genius loci, but were mobile teams. So they might be doing a cemetery one day, a playground the next day, and mowing, you know, 80 acres of a sports ground in the suburbs the next day. And the de-skilling that went on in the park sector was horrendous. And it, we have to thank the Lottery Fund, and I, I, um, and I feel very ambivalent about lottery funding yes. for public provision, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, it was the Lottery Fund who kind of not only put money on the table for all these parks, but in, insisted that there was training for staff, apprenticeships, a lot of new skills have been revived, stone cutting, arboriculture and so on. And we have to kind of cleave to that idea that a park, every park is quite unique mm -hmm. and it needs a unique kind of understanding of how it should be looked after. Mm -hmm. And what we're facing with is, is once again this kind of outsourcing of the lowest common denominator. Uh, management style, which means that it, they, they will eventually lose all their mm. identity. I mean, I think, you know, you were expressing caveats about nature writing, and I think you were quite wrong to put yourself mm. down in that way. Um, because one of the things that nature writing is, and it, a lot of it is on evidence here, is a craft. It's exactly one of these skills and crafts that gives one understanding. There's a tremendous number of wonderful words in your book, in this book. I mean, superb words. I've never, a word like swallet. What is a swallet? It I seems to be a dip in the ground. It's a hot, yeah, in a, a limestone hollow. landscape where yes. the water goes underground. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then lovely words like tump. Anyway, there's many, many ways of refining and sharpening the way we understand what kinds of landscapes we're going through, which has, it's like being with a craft worker. Let's show you how the stone should be flint, flint cut this way. Let me ask a question to Alexandra Harris, who's in the audience, who's one of the contributors to this book. There she is. Um, because she's written a beautiful essay about not really knowing anything, about how, how you might build a relationship with a place w without knowing the vocabulary of it um, and, and come, to, come to some understanding of it and, some, and, and that place might become meaningful to you through, through repeated entrances into it, learning those sorts of things. 
Alex? I suppose I idealise people who are terribly authentically hefted to their, their landscapes and they make me feel so inadequate because I don't know how to do anything in rural places. I don't have any manual skills. But what I do have is uh, a sort of addiction to, to reading. And so what I wanted to examine, I suppose, was how a large pile of books could help me inhabit places. And I think we look down on people carrying their guidebooks. But please don't, because guidebooks can really help us to open up the the temporal as well as the the spatial axis. What's mattered to me a great deal in the last year is discovering local history. I now have 140 volumes of the Sussex Archaeological Collection since 1860 on my shelf. Um, And the place where I grew up is a new and rich and and wondrous place. I just just don't understand why local history isn't part of our daily lives. It it should be. And... uh, but that, yeah. that's, I mean, that, that's wonderfully said, and everyone gathered that she's obsessed and mad uh, <laughs> with, with, with getting into the local and the particular. But um, I mean, that, does that sound to everybody else or anybody else a bit like the shell guides of the 1960s? Are we, I mean, is that still possible in the, in the, in the contemporary world to be, to feel that we're, is the, is the past enough, you know, or getting, getting the old stories out of a place enough to, to build a contemporary relationship with it? <laughs> I wanted to reflect on the death and parks issue that you raised um, and I wanted to say something about Ada Salter who was a a Quaker independent Labour Party member uh, at the turn of the last century in Bermondsey and she wanted to create a new life for the people living in extreme poverty, kids who never got to a park so she tried to re-green Bermondsey, she tried to get people moved out of Um, tend to a room tenements into houses with with gardens Uh, and one of the things that she did was persuade the local churches to allow their graveyards to be turned into kind of parks and children's playgrounds Um, so then the counter to that is that I now live I'm very lucky to live next to Blackheath and um, Greenwich Park uh, and where I live is where the Peasants' Revolt started down the hill to, to Deptford. Um, and I thought it was interesting that my 92-year-old French neighbour, who sadly died last year, had, she'd had a very interesting life. She'd had her, when she was a child, her house was occupied in um, rural France by Germans, and her father was taken off to internment camp and was never brought back. So that that lovely family farmhouse that she'd been brought up in, she had to leave. She lived most of her life in Calais, which she loved, and then she came to Greenwich for the last two or three years of her life. And I assumed that her family would want to take her back to France when she was cremated. But no, they sneaked into Greenwich Park in the (laughs) evening and hid her ashes uh, under a bush. So I thought that was very interesting what you said about that. But just, sorry, nearly done. Um, On your point about are there any parks now, what about the kind of redeveloped industrial landscapes that we have, like, I think you mentioned one of them, but like Rain and Marshes Mm. or the reservoir around Finsbury Park or, you know, parts of the Thames Path or the area around um, North Greenwich Tube where there's a kind of water park. Those kind of, those wilder, more urban kind of, parks, landscapes, is there a difference between them and the parks that are kind of really in our community that we, we feel safer and we're more familiar with? Well, for, for me, for me, those places are, um, as a bird person, those places are managed facilities. Uh, and, and the best of parks 
old parks is that they are, although they are managed still, they don't feel managed. Uh, I think making rewilding is a, is, a, is a nonce word as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it means basically uh, an as managed landscape as, 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 a, as a city street. Um, it, it, we, can't, we can't simply turn our back on, on nature and, 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 and let it come marvelously up again. It will grow again. Uh, but it, but it, that we've, we've, we've decided we need to manage it. So the, it never then, those places don't, for me, become uh, dynamic landscapes that have their own uh, expression. And they, are, they remain fundamentally surrendered landscapes uh, that can't really be truly entered by us, I feel, because they are, all of the entering is, is only permitted by the means of signboards or walkways or managed uh, facilities for wildlife. I mean, it's fantastic that the, you know, there's more wildlife now in North London than there was 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and the rivers are cleaner and so forth. But it, it's, it, it's come at a cost which is the, the, that actually the, the wildlife is, only, is there on sufferance, is, is still basically being managed by us. I mean, there's, there is no access any longer in any of those. And I rather prefer the kind of mess of, I mean, I've written, just written a book about um, gulls on rubbish dumps. And I mourn the awfulness of, of, the, of the country park. The country park seems to me like a kind of deadly word, uh, you know, thoric, mucking, the wonderful dump at mucking mm -hmm. site of the first uh, Caspian gull in Britain um, has now been mostly covered over. Fitzy, where I spent a lot of time, it, you know, it's a landfill site, an absolute truth to London and the whole of the country is now going to be sculpted into some bloody country park. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm I'm against that. I have to say. I mean, I'm not that I. I mean, it's, it's marvelous because there will be more. There won't be any gulls anymore, but there'll be orchids probably eventually down the line and so forth. That's fine. But I just think we need to be a bit careful that, about thinking that we are. We we can create these these semi wild or or we we can release the wild back without without forgetting that, that actually we are the agents of such a release. Sorry, I'm, I'm, the, I'm not meant to be the interlocutor, not the counter. Uh, <laughs> um, the question really starts with Tim. I'm interested in the photograph on, on the front of your book. Yeah. Um, I don't know much about it. But I was quite interested in asking you and the panel about the relationship between writing about the places you've been talking about and the way photographers, as a photographer obviously I'm interested in that, about the way photographers articulate these places. And it seems to me, you know, you could say there's a contest between them. But in a way I think they're reciprocal in a way that images demand words in order to articulate what you're looking at. And similarly, your writing maybe articulates images, if you like. So in a way I see there's a sort of reciprocal relationship. I just wonder if you had any thoughts and encounters. I know Ken does through his work with a photographer about what other people thought, the others in the group thinking about the way photographs influenced your sense of place. Well, i just say one thing then. Mm -hmm. but, um, I, I was very pleased to find this picture and, and very pleased that, that Robin at Cape uh, was happy to uh, um, put it forward as a possible cover. Um, it's taken by, a, I think she's a Czech, a, young, a youngish Czech photographer. Um, it's not taken in Britain. It's German, um, isn't it? Sorry? German. German, maybe. Yeah, I think it's somewhere, certainly east of Berlin. I, I'm slightly nervous of, of ruined porn. Uh, and, and so I, I knew this book needed to be, uh, have a kind of darkish 
cover. Uh, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't going to be about uh, it wasn't going to be a pretty lump of flowers. But I'm anxious about the way we have uh, there is a kind of trash broken edge land vernacular now in term in, in photography. I mean, it's fashionable image making um, of, of, of the broken landscapes that people I've made work with on these rubbish dumps have often been very excited by. I mean, rubbish is a, is a particularly appealing photographic subject. Uh, and it's, and, and, you know, a lot of books have now got rubbish on the covers uh, in, that, in that way. But so I, I think it's, it's hard to find a, an image that might describe contemporary place writing. I, I mean, I wanted it to be ordinary and a mixture of the leftover wild insofar as there is a, a leftover wild and the and the and the humanly modified landscape uh and that you know photography is very it needed to be a color picture you know it, not not a not a sweet black and white picture um it needed to be not very green um uh, not, not like most books about nature and the environment and so forth so um it's an interesting question. I haven't really got any more to say than that. I, I, I think that there's a, obviously a lot of photographs are simply marvelous. And, and some of the artists um, who've intervened in landscapes have also changed our ways. But there are, I think, two, two aspects that I'd like to bring out. One is that photography has a way of imprinting incredibly quickly on people's minds. So the places become enshrined as picturesque according to how they've been photographed. Or, or as image worthy, according to how, they, and there's that sort of pollution of the, you know, natural wild places where it says, you know, this is the point from which you should take your photograph, because in a sense that's a repeating, the, pr the procession of images keeps repeating down the generations. So there's, that's one thing, and it's and unless it's film, it's not mobile. So that's another problem. But it seems to me there's something Alex said about local history made me think of this, and that one of the ways that this kind of writing, writing a place, is trying to withstand the photographic fixing of memory and the local history observational type of uh, historical record is, is simply by invention and imagination. So they're not necessarily there. This is not, a, not, writing does not necessarily have to be tied to what actually happened or what actually is there. There is a way that the, when you know, Shelley writes his ode to the Skylark, he's taking our experience of the Skylark somewhere completely different through his imagina imagination of the Skylark. And that's also true, most of the romantics true of Keats and his Nightingale too. And I do think that that is certainly something of the task of the writer that we lose at our peril, that we must be allowed not to be truthful, not to be observational all the time. The local historian must be, and the documentary photographer must be, but not the not writers. I mean, the pact we have with our readers is that is to try and go to another place. I have, would take a little bit of issue with that. Well, first of all, I'm married to a photographer, and I've done two <laughs> books with her. And I've also worked with another photographer, Jason Alton. And in a sense, I, I was writing more as a social historian. Yes. And I found that working with a photographer, the dynamic, because well, I've been so much influenced by John Berger and Jean Moore, particularly A Fortunate Man and The Seventh Man, that the dynamic, if you can get it between the text and, and, and the image, can be tremendously productive. 
and I do always tell the story, and this is how I got in, you know, in 20 years ago, I had written 100,000 words on Essex um, because I was trying to recoup the, uh, the wonderful uh, probity of the, the county against uh, all kinds of yes, uh, uh, terrible dissimulations. <laughs> um, and uh, there were a couple of publishers interested, but they wanted more of this, more of that, more of that. And I, could, I had this 100,000 words, I couldn't do anything with it. And then a photographer, Jason Orton, came along and said, oh, I've got all these images, but uh, they, they won't take the exhibition unless there's some kind of text to it. And I, I, I wrote 9,000 words, and I, I, that 9,000 words said more. I was more happy with that. He said everything I wanted to say that I couldn't say in 100,000 words because the photographs had kind of lit the scene. They'd kind of opened it up the space in which a social historian could write uh, who's not a particularly poetic writer, and I'm not, but they've lit the scene in which I could write a social history that kind of brought the county kind of into the imagination. So, yeah, I think it's very important. I mean, but that I agree. You know, there are some times when the photograph could kill the, the, the text. I, and I could say something, but I feel I'm talking <laughs> too much. I spent three, month, three months in the summer drawing Ridley Road Market in Dalston and uh, it was a very, I just wanted to say in terms of getting to know a place, that was an amazing way of finding out about it because for, by sheer number of hours you need to spend in front of something to draw it, it builds up, you build up an understanding of it and especially the sort of organic nature of, of how a market works and things like that. And the gallery organized for a local school, uh, the 10-year-olds locally, to come and study the market themselves. And they produced fantastic drawings and, and actual uh, interesting, interested in the history as well. And they bound it all up together and really learned something more about this place because of this observation they, they too had to do. And I wonder whether you agree that um, in terms of carrying on this this very important observation that, that we are do you are doing of place children should maybe ask be, be asked to or encouraged to just sit in a place and just look and listen and not fill in um, questionnaires and not be bombarded but is is there a place for sort of how, how would you continue this important way of understanding the world and, and is it about just sitting still, perhaps, and looking. Yeah, I, I think one of my primary experiences is lying on my back watching clouds moving over the top of trees. Uh, and I can remember when I first did that. And that didn't involve any language at all. And I think, that, you know, I th I think you're, you're right. I mean, a, a, a deep contact, lying down on the ground is a good thing to do. <laughs> Um, I can do. It. I was just going to say I don't know if you know Rebecca Solnit's books, which is a very interesting writer of this kind, and um, and she one of one of her series is a series of personal maps. She's done three cities. She did her own San Francisco, then she did New Orleans, and then she did New York. And basically, she asks people to inhabit to create a map. She she asks a group of people, and she began with the idea of children. How do children know their area? How would they draw the map of their area? Because it wouldn't look like the map 
in the A to Z. It would look like this is the way I go to school, and this is, that's, the, that's the yellow awning on that shop that I go to, and so forth. So she created that, and they're drawn and pictured um, and written um, of different groups of people. So she takes, in San Francisco, she takes stevedores on the docks and butterfly collectors and this kind of thing. So I, and I think I've always thought that would be a fantastic exercise for children to do, to, to make the, uh, their own map. Uh, yes, I mean, I'm also a great uh, fan of the work of Colin Ward, um, who in the 1960s really pioneered environmental education in this country, particularly through a, something called B, the Bulletin for Environmental Education. And he was based at the Town and Country Planning Society. All, all, mapping, drawing, talking, really getting to know where you lived. All that's gone out the window through the curriculum which kind of keeps everybody in their classroom doing a set syllabus and, and not being allowed out of school anymore. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, I think, you know, we, we're again, we're lose, young people are losing the opportunity to get to know where they live. And, and you are Lucinda Rogers, aren't you? Yes. But uh, Lucinda had a fantastic exhibition at the House of Illustration uh, on drawings, of, beautiful drawings of Ridley Road, which are really mm. fantastic, yeah. Very strong sense of place. Yeah. Rubbish. Lots of rubbish. <laughs> goals. We've got goals. I, I, I'm, I'm aware we, we, probably need, we probably need to wrap up quite a bit. I just want to take a couple more questions, Mike, and I'm just going to get my other two contributors who I can yes. see who I don't feel I've got value out of yet. <laughs> uh, but there's there's, and there's a, second, a third one here. Let's just get a question from Mike in the corner. The other person that I was uh, thinking about and uh, was referenced briefly was Raymond Williams and his wonderful book, uh, The Country and the City, yeah. which I think was one of the most extraordinary books he wrote. And I think one of the important ideas I remember from that was this sense, I think, that we all have of our childhood being the place where uh, a relationship to place was mattered very much. And in a sense, we always feel that our, in our own lifetime, there is a kind of loss. And he traces that loss through English literature, you know, starting with people like when he was referring to people like John Betjeman going, going right back to uh, Goldsmith's deserted village. That sense in which generation after generation look back to their past and feel that something in their experience of the world and its place has been lost, going, and he takes it right back, as it were, to the Garden of Eden, that sort of huge, yeah. overwhelming myth which we grew up with. Uh, and I just wondered to the degree to which anyone else here feels I'm that same sense. Good. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to let my panel speak because I want to bring in, I'm going to go straight to Peter Davison, who's over here, uh, who's written this fantastic essay about perhaps the first ever painting of an ordinary place or, a, or an annotation of a, of a landscape that was going to be lost. And in, in the view, what Mike was just talking about was Raymond Williams' wonderful notation of the, uh, the possible, of, of all landscape being lost landscapes. <laughs> But the, can we give this to Peter? I can, but I don't know if he's going to Here he is. He's going to see, I want him to ask, talk about John Aubrey for a minute, and to add, just to add to the mix, and we're getting there close to the end now. Thank you, Peter. Perhaps because he barely had a conventional education in the terms of his time, and he was someone who annotated almost every aspect of his daily life, John Aubrey seems to be someone who is speaking with unusual immediacy to us about how he related to place. Um, what I wrote about was one of the drawings in his set of drawings of the sort of big farm he'd been brought up on. It's barely an estate. And that these are the first times that I've ever seen 
anybody in England notating small disregarded places, a little copse, a hollow in the side of a, of a, of a, of a hill. And there is a sense of personal involvement and in the drawings were an autobiography of all the time that he'd spent there. Now he made them the, from the day that he knew he was going to have to sell it and leave. So they are this extraordinary sort of letter to the future, to himself in his landless future, but in a curious way they're also a letter to us because his book of drawings of the place where he grew up is barely annotated, barely contexted. And the only fragments of text that go with these drawings of quotations and a sort of note to see the note I made in my copy of Euclid, which is in another library, which actually is a wonderful attempt to say that if you give a lot of time to a place and the shadow of retirement, you see things that other people don't see. So in a curious way, Aubrey, I think, spoke to the kind of built memory we've all been talking about. And as he so often did, extraordinarily early in our history of sensibility. Thank you. Thank you. I, that's a wonderful essay on John Aubrey's drawing. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm gonna, I feel we all need to have a break, really. But um, I want to just get Richard Holmes to say one thing, which is about writing about evanescent place, about liquid, about water, about place that's not really get a holdable of, if that's a formulation. Richard. Yes, trapped. <laughs> um, I'd love to think of you, Tim, lying on your back looking at the clouds. This seems to me an editorial position. Um, I also want to congratulate you. I think it's a wonderful introduction you've written. Out. Not enough has been said about that, covering this field of not nature writing as well. Wonderfully done. And in the middle of it, this moment from Coleridge's journal, where Coleridge, seeking his place, it's a slot in the rocks, which he describes as a coffin, and therefore he lies in it, and he looks up, and he sees the sky and a sycamore tree, and then he concludes, it was quite soft. Now, from Coleridge to Wordsworth, and this is the point I want to make, um, in a wonderful other piece by Sean Borodell, who's the painter and the poet, he quotes, in fact, Dorothy Wordsworth, um, who says, I left William in bed hurting a sonnet, hurting a sonnet. And this struck me is that the quality of so many of the pieces and about 30, 32 pieces in here. I asked myself what united them and one thing is the intensity of the writing. It's very striking to me. I'm not saying they're all sonnets, but something very intense is brought out when people are asked to write about a special particular place. And the other thing is how many of them are autobiographical. If you look, the first sentence often will start with I or me or our. And there's this paradox that the place, the outside thing, the exterior, seems to call up the inside thing, the autobiography, the personal story. And that's a dynamic that seems to run through all these pieces. And so I wonder if it could not just be called groundwork, but inner work, or even underground work. <laughs> anyway, congratulations on a wonderful anthology. Well, thank you very much. Very fine.
Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.